Welcome, everyone, to Mystery, a podcast about myths and history. I am one of your hosts, Brian, my permanent guest, Cammie. Welcome back, Cammie. Hi, thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks for being here on this episode of your podcast, uh, where today we're going to talk about invisible men. No <laughs> invisible women, right, Cammie? What's up with that? Come on. Can you speak I, to that? I don't know. I think we'd rather fly. True. <laughs> Next episode, flying women. <laughs> Uh, but today's episode, we're going to talk about the concept of the Invisible Man, um, which was made famous in the book The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, uh, a writing pioneer in horror science fiction. As you know how the show goes, Cammie gives us a story and then I'll lead a little discussion. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Cammie, lead the fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I used, obviously, The Invisible Man, the book by H.G. Wells. One... Uh, thing about this, you can get it for free. I'm sure there's other places, uh, but Apple has it for free to read. So yeah. want to let everybody. 1897, no copy right there. It was a cold night. A blizzard kept the town from moving, but during the standstill, a train did arrive with a stranger aboard. And soon a man, bundled and freezing, stood at the threshold of the coach and horses, a quaint English inn in the sleepy town of Ipping, West Sussex. He demanded a room and a fire from the owner and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Hall. His body and face were covered with bandages, and he wore an oversized hat and glasses. Once the Halls got him settled, he insisted to not be disturbed. But the mystery surrounding him was too much for the couple. They made any excuse to barge into his room to see what sort of criminal or spy they housed. For he was certainly foreign, American likely from the accent. The mysterious man's only concerns were for his privacy and his property being delivered to the inn, which could not be done in the blizzard. The following day, his suitcases arrived, large and heavy, clinking noises emitted from them as they were brought upstairs, and the man could not have been more delighted to have them. Mr. Hall noted upon delivery that the man was still clad in his overcoat and bandaged to the point that not even a little bit of skin was showing. But as the man reached for his luggage, Mr. Hall could have sworn that part of his arm was invisible. The man quickly shooed Mr. Hall away, saying he must have the utmost privacy to conduct his experiments, for he was an experimental investigator, a very important professional. No one in this small village would understand. He worked for weeks on his experiments, but the Halls became exasperated with the secrecy and lack of payment for the services they were providing him. So they went with the sheriff to confront him. They could not. They could find no one in his room, only the beakers and potions that he had concocted. But the room seemed possessed. The bottles moved on their own, and Miss Hall grew more and more panicked. When just then she heard the voice of the stranger, but she could not see him. He spoke to her about his power and visibility, and with that power came his invincibility. The sheriff tried to grab him, but the man was much stronger and left him in a battered state. On the run, in the middle of a harsh English winter, the stranger must find shelter. He came upon a house with open windows and, and helped himself to a fire in the kitchen when he recognized the owner of the home, Dr. Kemp, an old professor. Do not be alarmed, you cannot see me, but is your old friend and pupil, Griffin. Dr. Kemp looked around him for the source of the disembodied voice, but could only see his chair in front of the fire begin to move forward, as though being dragged to a warmer spot. Griffin confessed everything, the way he had 
the way he had for the last few months injured, injured innocence and, and been thieving to survive. He told the doctor of his plans to take over England and live lavishly on the money he could steal. He begged the doctor to let him stay the night. Dr. Kemp was too frightened to argue. He showed Griffin to the guest room, and when he was sure that the man was settled and he could hear light snoring, he ran downstairs and locked himself in his study to phone the police. When they arrived, Griffin awoke and quickly removed his clothes. He was able to grab a gun from Dr. Kemp's study on his way out and shot at the officers, fatally wounding one of them. Dr. Kemp ran in the direction of Griffin's footsteps in the snow and followed him into town. He tried to restrain him, yelling that he was chasing the invisible man, and the entire town began to run after him as well. They finally cornered him and blindly landed blows on the ground, the street, the wall behind them, and eventually the man. Dr. Kemp tried in vain to restrain the mob, but he could not. Suddenly the stranger began to appear before, him, before them, naked and pale, as the life left him. Oh, damn. Just a mob of people punching the air. What a riot. It's like a mosh pit origin. <laughs> that's cool. I, I, I avoided the story because I had a feeling you'd go directly on that, so I didn't really know too much. That, that's wild. Yeah, this, um, this story sounds really great. H.G. Um, <clears throat> Wells wrote this, uh, wrote the um, Time Machine novel as well, and it, he, he certainly is regarded as a pioneer of horror science fiction, and I thought it was interesting that it was horror as well, and it, it really is that suspense thriller you know, genre. And he, he really was on top of that. Um, I rented a, a the movie. Yeah. And just so I could finish it. Cause I, I read books, like kind of, you know, try to savor them a little. Yeah. And he, um, yeah, the, it, it was definitely like tried to be in that vein of horror. Like the, it was almost like an Alfred Hitchcock feel to it. How sure. Yeah. You know, there's something after you, you're not, well, obviously you can't see it cause it's the invisible man or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wonder I, I wonder how it reads. I wouldn't want it to be severely scary. The idea of the it's Invisible not. Man is scary enough. Right. Like, I, I don't want to see someone try, you know, if they adapt it. Um, and that's it. That that's So when we talked about doing this, I wanted to see about, like, finding the concept of the Invisible Man in uh, culture and history and things like that. And what I found was probably the biggest thing is the the ring of, and I, I believe it's pronounced Geige's, um, or Giges, uh, what's the, I can't remember how the Y is pronounced in Greek. Anyway, sorry. But the Ring of Gyges, I'll just say Gy, or Gy, Gyges, we'll go with Gyges. The Ring of Gyges, uh, it's mentioned by this old philosopher named Plato, I do know how to say that, uh, in Book Two of the Republic. And of course it is there, and it's, it's basically a philosophical discussion of what you would do if you had the power to become invisible through this ring, the Ring of Gyges. And um, so that it's cool that, like, of course, that the way we discover this is through that. Um, it's not clear if, uh, like, how this this goes. If if I, I'm I'm imagining this existed before Plato, and he just kind of brought it into a philosophical context. You know, that there was a story of a magical um, ring that can make you turn invisible. Um, uh, uh, a king. Um, guy, geez, did live of of Lydia as a historical king, um, talked about by like Herodotus and things like that. Um, uh, there was this golden ring that he pocketed. Um, he discovered by adjusting that ring, he gained the power of visibility. He arranged to become one of the king's messengers as the status of the flocks arriving at the palace. Used his um, power to seduce the queen. 
um, and then murder the king and become the king of Lydia himself. So um, how, how does becoming invisible make you seduce? I don't know. I, that's, it's so weird. There's so much more you can do with your invisibility power, people. I don't know. Um, so and then in the Republic, it's the character of uh, Glaucon, uh, the brother of Plato. Um, he asked whether a man c- could be so virtuous that he may resist the temptation, the, the temptations of you know how it would be easy to do all that stuff invisible, being undetected. Um, Glaucon wants Socrates to argue that it is beneficial beneficial for us to be just, independent of any consideration for our reputation. So talking about virtuosity, I, I you know in the with the power, Marcus Aurelius would be proud, of course. Um, there was a great quote, though. This is all from Wikipedia. Uh, but of necessity, for whenever anyone thinks that he can be safely, he, that he can safely be unjust, there he is unjust. So if you're thinking, I could get away with that, you are you are unjust. You know, even just considering that you could do something bad without repercussions, you are being unjust. So I, I like that. I like that this there's a discussion that, you know, you could be having in your like basement with smoke in the air you're like oh could i do this if i was invisible would you do this and then these dudes are talking about it too you know a few thousand years ago um but uh so that that's the, that's kind of the big thing and of course um looks like tolkien um kind of got from that uh the the um it, it's speculated there's no you know, tolkien had, had extensive records and it, it, there's no direct uh reference that he did take that um but uh it it um it's cool that Tolkien did, you know, his, his ring is golden. It does make you invisible in the Lord of the Rings, but it, it definitely is evil. It, it, you, the more you wear it, the more evil you are. And it's, it exudes that. So I think that kind of helps take the morality out of it. Um, which I think is nice for, for storytelling purposes. Um, interestingly too, uh, John Jacques Rousseau wrote, um, about what he would do if he had the ring of Gyges. He just kind of went on a fan fiction of like, yeah, this is what I do. I don't know what the, it is. I don't know how, you know, I go, love it when go, people go do find that. that out for yourselves. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, I sp- this is, like, you know, 1782 is when he wrote it, and so he's just, like, having a time, like, just writing out in it. Another reference, old reference, uh, coming from the ancients is the Cap of Hades, also called the Cap of Invisibilities. called the Cap of Hades because he owned it. And while the dude gets a bad rap being the head of the underworld, he's, he's a good dude. Lay off Hades a little bit. Um, this was brought up in uh, Clash of the Titans, the 80s version. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was in the, or the, maybe late 70s version. It was, I don't know if yeah. it was in the other one. Maybe, oh, I can't even remember that. I just remember uh, Liam Neeson. Yeah, he got, th- remember he got three items. I don't, I don't remember what, I just remember the cap because it made him invisible. But. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so um, in classical mythology, the helmet is said to uh, belong to the god of the underworld. Um, uh, it's also called the helmet of Pluto. Uh, Erasmus calls it the helmet of Orcus. Um, be, the helmet becomes proverbial for those who conceal their true nature by a cunning device. The helmet of Pluto, which maketh the politic man go invisible, is secrecy in the council and celerity in the execution. And so it's, it always seems like um, a lot of these, the ancient sources kind of tie it to, you can't, you can't just get be invisible. It's, there's got to be some kind of moral implication to, to just even obtain and think about using it. Like just even thinking about using it is like a challenge um which is pretty wild um so yeah i I thought that was great um it it said that it was made to um uh by the uranian cyclops um when he gave zeus the lightning bolt beside the trident and then he gave the helmet to to hades um in their war against the titans so um yeah uh that's that's kind of the the main you know like roman greco-roman stuff uh it does kind of show up in a few other things. Um, 
in invisibility um, is in a lot of folklore common in Welsh and Germanic lore, just kind of in general. I remember a lot of the stuff wasn't necessarily written down, but it, it's just kind of there in those word of mouth um, folk tales. Uh, you know, some scholars speculate that the cap, uh, the the Greek, the Roman Greco Roman cap, could have translated from uh, their cultures into the Welsh Germanic as you know that culture spread. The mantle of invisibility is the, described in the tale of Colwick and Olwyn, which is a Welsh one. Uh, it's, it's one of King Arthur's most prized possessions. So this was circa the 12th century. Um, the mantle is described again in more detail. I, I don't want to butcher Welsh, so I'm not going to... Maybe Bredud Ronabwy? Ronabwy? Bredud Ronabwy? Uh, and is later listed as one of the 13 treasures of the island of Britain. So the mantle of visibility. I, I'm sure... Um, Rowling, this might be where she got the invisibility cloak idea um, in some way. Uh, this, um, so a similar mantle is appears in the second branch of the Mabinogi, which, if you remember, it was like a late written. It was kind of like a compendium of Welsh mythology, but it was like post-Christian, so it's kind of you know iffy. But um, it's uh, used by Caswallon. Um, no, that's not how you say that word. I'm so sorry, Welsh listeners. Um, to assassinate the seven stewards left behind the Bran, the Blessed, and usurp the throne. So, um, you know, uh, Welsh mythology kind of made this big resurgence, um, especially in, like, um, Brittany um, and in France. Uh, the, the King Arthur legends, the, those kind of things came up during this period when people were sharing these wonderful stories. And, I'm sh- I mean, a, a mantle of invisibility would be a perfect plot device for any French nobleman. You know what I'm saying? So, um, very cool. Uh, in the English fairy tale, which I didn't realize this was English, Jack the Giant Killer, um, the hero is rewarded with several magical gifts uh, from the giant, including a coat of invisibility. Um, and another, um, the tale of Tom Thumb. Uh, from Norse mythology um, and uh, other more Celtic, yeah, uh, they mentioned the Mabinogian again. Um, so there are some coats, mantles, and things like that. Uh, and then also in Japan, they have the Kakuremino, um, the magical straw cape or raincoat of invisibility, um, which there's a really cool folktale called the Peach Boy, Momotaro. Um, and that's one of the treasures he gets from slaying an ogre, um, which is super parallel to the the mini thing of Jack the Giant Slayer, which I've, I knew that there was like a movie and thing, but I've never, we, that's definitely a future episode, Jack the Giant Slayer or Giant Killer. Um, definitely something worth talking about. I didn't realize it was an old English story. Um, totally makes sense. But yeah, I really, I think this is really cool. Um, the Momotaro one, by the way, it's so cute. I like this, this this little boy who's like born from a peach. Um, makes me think of Jack and the Giant sure. Peach, which I barely remember. But yeah, he just like cute little boy. Like there's a little like woodblock almost, or a you know, classical painting. This is from like the 12th century in Japan. So um, by we, we have evidence that it was a word of mouth story in the 12th century. So um, yeah, it, it it looks like the the Greco-Roman. That's where we get the oldest references to it. Um, mainly came up through philosophical debate, but it definitely was there. I, I couldn't. It, it's a, kind of tricky to see. I don't know if um, any of the kind of un, you know our um, unusual sources, uh, you know, uh, South Asian mythology, African mythology. I didn't see anything directly referencing that. So if you are aware of something, please let us know. I, I would really like to hear others. I, it was really refreshing to see it being mentioned so much in. Celtic and Welsh mythology. Um, I didn't realize it was connected to King Arthur like that, but again, kind of kind of makes sense. Um, and it said Germanic, but I'm guessing there was no specific story referenced. I'm just guessing in general that Western, you know, um, Anglo sphere, it just be, kind of became a story of that that became famous enough to stick around the way it did. So uh, 
but yeah, and then this dude H.G. Wells in 1897 brings out this book, and um, it it seems like it's a great story. Uh, it has a couple of successful films, kind of. Um, very famous. Uh, just to, to, before I finish, just to uh, talk about the story real fast. Um, at this time, you know, this is the time of uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, sure. you know, Conan Doyle and stuff like that. Um, uh, children's literature was very prominent. And uh, jo- Dr. John Sutherland, a British uh, literary critic, um, he talks about the contemporaries like um, Doyle and Rudyard Kipling and H.G. Um, Wells. They were essentially kind of writing like um, children's books for grown-ups. That's what these were. They were just a suspenseful hook, very easy to read, but really captivating, really fun. And uh, this book really, especially, I, I didn't realize, we need to talk to our um, friend from What a Goal Wants, um, if she's seen, but a Griffin has become an extremely iconic, uh, the, the main character of the, the Invisible Man, an extremely iconic character in horror fiction. So um, this, this, this story, this, this tale really did a big number, and I think it's, it's probably influenced directly and indirectly hundreds and hundreds of tales and stories, whether they're directly about invisibility or, or not. Um, but it's really cool to see. Uh, my last note, um, Yakov, Russian writer Yakov um, Perelman um, in the 1960s uh, has a book, Physics Can Be Fun, and he talked about um, <laughs> he talked about the science behind it. It was really cool. Uh, basically, he's saying that the method would have blinded um, Griffin, essentially, like not worked the way he did. Uh, but it's cool to see that he kind of tried. Um, so, but yeah, Mr. Uh, Perelman had to shoot that fun balloon out of the sky. So, <laughs> uh, Cami, thank you for that story. That was a great little way. Yeah, yes, thank you. Can. you. Yeah, absolutely. You, and you can get the whole entire book. Um, I'm sure. What's what's the source that we use for the free books all the time? Oh my gosh, what is that huge website that has millions? The of... Google Books one. There, you can just Google it and get oh, it. Oh, I know um, what you're talking about, and we should put it in the show oh notes because I do not remember. I know exactly what you're talking it's about. It's going Gutenberg, over my head. Gutenberg, right? Gutenberg Project, yes. Yeah. Oh, thank God. I was like, this is going to be horrible if you can't remember <laughs> it. I'm going to be like, free books, maybe German? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Gutenberg.org, I believe, they have uh, tons of books in great formats, and I'm sure that this is on there. But yeah, you should be able to just download it straight from like Google Play Store, Apple Store, and all that. Um, well, uh, Cammy. Thank you again for everything, everyone. Let us know what you think uh, as we continue into January. Um, if you got any uh, episode suggestions, let us know. Mystery with an IE at gmail.com. Click our uh, mystery.net website for all of our links to support us. I think that's it, right? Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, uh, <laughs> stay visible, and we will see you next time. Oh, oh. Where did that wolf go?